another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Erin Garrett. And I'm your co-host, Abigail Garfalo. And today we are here with Katie O'Reilly, and she is an aquatic invasive species specialist with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And she's here to chat with us all about aquatic invasive species. So welcome, Katie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Erin and Abigail, for having me on uh, this month's podcast. I'm excited to talk about all things spooky and scary with aquatic invasive species. I'm going to say, I hope this episode comes out by Halloween because it'll be very timely for everybody. So definitely, definitely. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, When we talk about aquatic invasive species, which ones are we most concerned about when we look at Illinois and the Great Lakes? Yeah. So if you live in Illinois or the Great Lakes area, you've probably heard a lot about those invasive carp. Uh, You know, sometimes they're called Asian carp, uh, but it's actually a couple of different species that we're concerned about. And we're really concerned about them because they've gotten established in the Illinois River. uh, And the Illinois River is connected to Lake Michigan via a bunch of canals in the Chicago area. And the reason we're worried about these guys is that they are just you know, hungry, hungry hippos when it comes to consuming aquatic uh, resources. And so they really outcompete some of our native fish species. Uh, They take away food that's helped support baby fish as well as freshwater mussels that we have. Um, And the concern is, you know, we've seen the damage they've done in the Illinois River and the Mississippi River, and we don't want those same impacts to happen in the Great Lakes. That's not to say carp are the only people or the only invasive species we're concerned about. Um, there's a lot of species that have gotten press about, you know, a big threat to the Great Lakes. And unfortunately, the Great Lakes have had this long history of invasive species. Um, so we are concerned not only about the carp getting into the lakes, but all, all of these species that have already gotten here and have, we've seen their impacts, things like our zebra and quagga mussels, sea lamprey which are kind of these charismatic invasive species that a lot of people have heard of, um, to lesser known species such as the red bloody shrimp or um, Eurasian water milfoil, things that are not quite as well known by by most folks. So I have a couple of questions first. One, I want to know, so there are currently none of the invasive carp in the Great Lakes? So we know of, I guess. (laughs) Well, there's no no invasive carp in Lake Michigan. There, One of the invasive carp, uh, the grass carp, has actually been found to be established in Lake Erie. Um, those guys, are they damage the environment because they eat a lot of aquatic vegetation or plants. And so the concern there is that they're just going to take away a lot of habitat for fish, but they are present in Lake Erie, unfortunately. Ah, Lake Erie. Lake Erie. Always, always Lake Erie. It's always, <laughs> always you. Lake Erie. Oh, that's funny. And you mentioned some pretty spooky names, which I really love that red blooded shrimp. I don't know if anyone's ever seen a picture of a, a lamp. A, is, are we talking about the lampreys? The or sea the, lampreys. The, yeah. The sea lampreys. But man, those things are the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. I, I want to know more. Tell me, um, you know, so how are they getting into, you know, these new places? How are they getting established? in our in our great lakes and in our even in our rivers right so that's a really good question because you know we think about invasive species it's like oh there's this harmful thing that's causing damage to our environment but we have to also remember the species didn't necessarily just appear one day itself um humans 
are the main pathway of introducing new species to an area. And that can really take a lot of different shapes and forms. It can be, you know, maybe it's a species we like having as a pet or in our gardens. And for example, in like the case of pets, they can get released or escape. Um, things in your garden can get outside the confines of your, your garden and, and get into natural areas. They can also, uh, species can also sometimes be hitchhikers or stowaways. So in a lot of cases, you know, if you take your boat out to the lake and you might have some plants attached to your propeller or something, that material and that, those species can actually go with your boat to the next water body you would go to. In the Great Lakes, we also have that kind of boat problem on a larger scale in terms of our cargo ships. Uh, sometimes the ballast water that they take up into their cargo holds to help regulate their buoyancy can also be a way that species basically get sucked up at one port and transported to another port, even across the ocean. There's lots of different pathways they can get established and be, get to new places. Um, but kind of the common denominator at that all is that it's human assisted in, in some way or form, whether we intentionally want to bring them someplace or unintentionally uh, give them access to a place. Definitely. I think a lot of the times we don't think about the unintended consequences of our actions until it's too late, right? So we don't right. realize that things are getting moved. And then in hindsight, we're like, well, that seems obvious that it could get taken along with the water, right, in the ship and then dumped somewhere else. Or with plants too, you know, things we put in our gardens, we say, hey, well, it's just in my garden. It's not going to move anywhere. But there's a lot of wildlife and things that come in and move things around that we don't usually, you know, think about happening. And so there are a lot of ways that those can get out right um well and aquatic pets like we think that oh we're you know we can't take care of it anymore the oh like the the lake will be so nice for it and all of that and um you know i think i wrote an article about this like i always say like whether it survives um or it uh it dies like both are kind of bad honestly <laughs> um because if it's thriving and surviving it's it's probably not doing the best for that environment um and you know we we think that this one animal like we're going to help this one animal but we're actually to the detriment of a lot of other, not just animals, but other organisms in that ecosystem. So, Exactly. That's a, a really good point. Not only, you know, it, it's a bad outcome in either case. It's like, you know, potentially your pet would suffer in a natural environment because it's not used to that, or it doesn't suffer. And it, in fact, the environment suffers from the impacts of that. So on that note, we're talking about all the bad things that invasive <laughs> species do. Are they always a bad thing? Is there any positive impact that we can get out? Not that we necessarily want to promote the spread of these invasives, but are we seeing, especially with the aquatics, are we ever seeing any positive impacts that come out of their presence here? Yeah, so that's a really good point, Erin. You know, obviously we don't want to encourage like the introduction of further species or the spread of species. And this is a classic trait of ecologists like myself. We try and look at the whole picture and sometimes it's not, a clear black and white like this is always bad or negative this is always good or positive and i think one of the biggest cases we've seen of that in the great lakes with invasive species is a fish uh, called the round goby which appeared back in about the 1990s it was one of those stowaways on a cargo ship uh, from kind of eurasia area and it's caused a lot of harm in that it it's just an aggressive little guy uh Despite their small size, they're they're kind of the bullies of the benthos or the, the bottom. 
and they small out-compete. but mighty is what I'm hearing. Exactly, they are a hundred percent small but mighty. They definitely punch above their weight in terms of aggressiveness, and that ability has given them really a competitive advantage over our native species. So they've had this negative impact of outcompeting native fish, but we've noticed in the 30-ish years since they've become established, they've also become an important prey source for a lot of organisms. So things like smallmouth bass that a lot of people enjoy catching uh, when they go out fishing have really turned to round goby as a, a food source. And kind of most notably, there was a threatened species of snake, the Lake Erie water snake. Its numbers were pretty low. And after the round goby became established, it actually provided such an uh, abundant prey source for the snake species that they were able to get off the threatened list. Like it helped their population numbers increase. Again, we don't want to necessarily say that invasive species are a good thing. They're the whole, you know, definition of an invasive species is something that causes harm, but sometimes there can be uh, a mixed bag almost of impacts, uh, whether we're thinking it. That's even to think, you know, not only their ecological impacts, but like, what are their economic impacts? Like maybe something that is economically beneficial is like, yay, humans like this, but it may have some ecological impacts that, as Aaron mentioned, may not always be apparent at first glance. So it's nuanced and that's what makes it tough to say, like, it's always bad, but we obviously want to maintain a healthy ecosystem and oftentimes invasives make that really challenging. Yeah, I love that you talk about the nuance. I feel like Aaron and I are, are, are land folks. So we're, we often talk about, you know, the ecology of the, of the, the terrestrial parts of the landscape. And it's really cool to see that aquatic side of the nuance of that. You know, we, Aaron and I, I'm sure have heard stories of like, you know, we can't just clear cut all the invasive um, you know, honeysuckle or something from a space because then we're leaving birds really vulnerable or, or right. other aspects of it. So we have to kind of think about, and also to resource-wise, right? Like it doesn't make sense oh, yeah. to do that resource-wise as well. We don't have the, the money or the, the capacity. Um, and it's interesting to think that those kinds of trade-offs and nuances exist in the, in the and of course they do in the aquatic space, um, but we just don't get to talk about it very often. So it's really, really cool that we get to hear that side of it. Right. And I think that's a perfect way of phrasing it, Abigail, is it's all about trade-offs, about what is, what are we, you know, valuing in our ecosystem um, and how do we protect an ecosystem in line with what the things that are important to us. So we were talking about impacts and, you know, we're talking about these trade-offs, but let's talk about those impacts of those invasive species. You know, once they're established, how do we manage for that? And is it possible to get rid of them completely? Yeah. So, this is where some of the terminology gets a little uh, fuzzy. When we say established, what we're talking about with invasive species is that they've gotten to a new location and that they're able to reproduce. So if you just have like a single carp in the lake, that's not considered established. It's someone who got lost in the Chicago River. Um, but established means they're reproducing, uh, they're potentially spreading to a further location. And once a species has become established, it's really, really tough to turn back that clock and to eradicate them completely. We've seen that in the Great Lakes with things like the sea lamprey, which became established in the 20th century. 
there's been this really honestly amazing effort between the U.S. and Canada to control them. So the way you control sea lamprey in the Great Lakes is applying this what's called a lampricide or it's similar to like a pesticide or herbicide, a chemical to the streams where they reproduce. And this lampricide application kills them in their juvenile stage. It's super effective. Um, they, be, because it's both countries, they kind of cover the entire Great Lakes Basin. It's obviously very expensive to do that, both in terms of human power and the resources. And they've been doing this now for 50 years and we still haven't gotten rid of the lamprey. In fact, back during the pandemic, when we weren't able to as easily treat a lot of streams, a lot of streams went untreated. And we've seen a little increase in the sea lamprey population as a result of that here a couple of years down the line. So all that to say that even with like a billion dollar investment over 50 years of treatment, we've really only been able to, you know, knock down their numbers. We haven't been able to completely get rid of them. And that's like a best case scenario where we have like a really clear chemical control. We have two countries working together to cover a wide swath of land. It's like best case scenario. For that's all best case scenario. Kind of stuff like exactly. So yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's it's similar both in the terrestrial and the aquatic world. It's really tough once you let the cat out of the bag in terms of a non-native species. And so a lot of the work that we try and do, especially with Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant is preventing those species from getting established in the first pl place. Um, because the old phrase, uh, uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is very true. If we can cut them off before they get to that stage where they're reproducing and building up a population, it's a lot easier. And it's, a, it's actually in some cases feasible to eradicate a small population rather than a, a large one that's just not feasible, whether it's in terms of resources or we just don't have the tools to manage them. For those in more of the invasive species realm, that's kind of where we get the phrase early detection, rapid response is kind of the approach that we have, right? That we want to be on the lookout when we see something right away, we detect it early and then we rapidly respond, right? And try to get rid of that small population before it establishes and grows. Um, you know, that's why we, when we've got invasives in neighboring states, right? It just happens that that's usually the boundary that we use. We're like on the lookout for those. And when they hit, Illinois, um, we're like immediately alert, go, everyone needs to know where it's at and to be aware so that we can try to, right, keep it from establishing and spreading. Um, and that really is kind of the the tool that we have is, is the prevention. And then if it is here to really be aware and get it right before it, you know, is able to establish. Well, and for the aquatic realm, it's really difficult because with a lot of herbicides and pesticides, what we want is them to not last very long once they hit the water, right? We want them to degrade really quickly for terrestrial environments. Aquatic environments, that's, we need, like, we can't have them degrade as soon as they hit the water, otherwise they're not doing anything. And so that's, it's a really interesting conundrum because you're like, the water just plays this whole other piece to it that makes it even more difficult to manage for. Absolutely. And then you add that to the, the other thing that, um, you know, you've got water bodies that are connected, um, both permanently. So, you know, you have like streams that go between places, but you may also have um, these kind of shorter term events, things like flooding. So even if you have like a pond that you think is totally cut off and so you're just putting a carp in there um, 
it that's actually how the invasive carp made it up to Illinois was they were in fish ponds in Arkansas that were separated from the Mississippi River but during kind of the seasonal flooding events that was able to get them into the river where then they were sort of on a super highway to 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 spread so even when we think we might have an isolated population water flows where it wants to flow and that can also make controlling things challenging too in addition to the fact that it's just tough to have chemicals that work in the the aquatic realm that aren't necessarily going to just indiscriminately kill a bunch of fish or plants now i know we want to talk about prevention but i actually feel like i need to back up a little bit and i need to know more about the lamprey i need to understand (laughs) this this animal more i need to i just just because i just i i need to is it a fish is it an eel like what is it how does it work what is the lore of the lamprey tell me more oh my gosh okay let's 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 start back at the beginning because sea lamprey are just the coolest um, and I could go on for hours, so hopefully I will will not ramble too much with this because I just love lamprey. So the sea lamprey is just one species of lamprey. There's about 40 worldwide. We actually have four native species of lamprey in the Great Lakes. Uh, the difference between them and the sea lamprey is our native lampreys are a lot tinier, but the sea lamprey is just wild. It is a fish. It is not your typical fish, obviously, if you ever see an image of them, uh, but for those who don't have pictures of lamprey up on their walls that they can admire, don't know Do why you, you wouldn't. Is that what you're alluding to? We need I, to know. I, mean, I, 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 I neither confirm nor deny uh, the, the lamprey love. Um, but so this is an animal that, like you said, kind of looks like an eel. It's got a snake-like body and it doesn't have what we think of as jaws. It has this sort of suction cup mouth, circular suction cup mouth that has these multiple rows of teeth and their teeth are actually made of the same material our fingernails are. So horrifying. it horrifying. is absolutely horrifying. <laughs> the most horrifying description you could possibly provide. <laughs> oh, just wait, just wait. It gets better. Um, and so they use those horrifying teeth and that suction cup mouth to attach to a host because they're a, a parasite and their host of choice is in the, the Great Lakes, at least, are some of our fish species. So things like our lake trout. And what they then do upon attaching to their host is basically, you know, I, I think of it as sort of a fishy Capri Sun. They suck up some of their uh, blood, liquid materials, um, and Aaron and I's face right now. I know this is an audio recording. I wish, I wish there were faces. Horrified. <laughs> Continue with the Capri Sun analogy, please. The sea lamprey has a compound in its sort of arsenal that helps the blood from clotting, so it you know can keep feeding on its its host, which is even better if you think about it. Depending on who you are, if you're the fish, that doesn't sound better. (laughs) I was going to say, some days you're the fish, some days you're the sea lamprey. (laughs) Um, And obviously the problem with that is the sea lamprey doesn't necessarily kill its fish. Um, Host, it, it may, depending on how long it's attached, if the fish is already in like a stressed condition. And in its native range the sea lamprey is native to like the coast of north america and its native range fish and marine mammals have as like adapted to live with the sea lamprey so it, it's not as bad but the fish in the great lakes did not adapt for the sea lamprey 
the sea lamprey is way bigger than our native species, so it can just do a lot more damage. Hold on. I don't know if yeah. I connected this. So you're telling me yeah. this species can also survive in marine and freshwater environments? Absolutely. Yeah. This so thing it is amazing slash horrible. Like, I just don't know. It's almost like, you know, at a certain point, you're just like, what can it do? Um, what can it do? Well, and so that's actually, you were asking, where do they come from? Do we know how they reproduce? In the native range, they live as adults in the ocean, but they come back into freshwater streams and rivers when it's time to reproduce. And -hmm. so they lay their eggs in freshwater and the babies actually hatch. And they're at that time, they are not parasitic. So they don't have mouths even. Uh, They just, well, they kind of, they filter feed out of the water. So they're, they're not those like scary, you know, rows of teeth that the adults have. The babies never are baby they it's always they they'll get you it's the cuteness <laughs> though i don't really know if anyone would be describing juvenile lampreys as cute uh they kind of look like little worms and when they hatch in the streams kind of float downstream a little bit and then they burrow themselves at the bottoms of the streams and basically hang out there for up to seven years so a sea lamprey will spend most of its life actually as a baby and during that time, that little baby worm just sits with its head out of the sediment and collects various things that float on by. Once it has matured enough, uh, it will metamorphize into an adult, which then has this you know scary mouth, everything. And in the native range, that's when they go back out to the ocean to do their, their feeding. We have the same general cycle in the Great Lakes, only instead of the ocean, the adults spend their life in the lakes themselves, but then come back into those tributaries to spawn. I don't know what to do with that information in my life, but I have it now and I have to live with it. And you have to live so, with that image of, you know, a, a Capri Sun lake trout. With the with the nail-like teeth. With okay, the nail-like teeth, exactly. So funny. I mean, um, I could leave you with the final fact that in Europe, the sea lamprey is considered a delicacy that people eat. Uh, Actually, back when Queen Elizabeth was having her jubilee, however many years ago, there was an effort that people from the Great Lakes were like, well, why don't we send lamprey to England? Because they really like lamprey. They make pies out of it. You know, this would be a nice way to celebrate the queen from from the Great Lakes. Uh, So if you'd like lamprey pie, that is, you know, I guess maybe it's it's not the snack that smiles back or, you know, you bite the snack, whatever. There's got to be some some praise for it. I don't know where that was going. I don't know I, where that was going either. I, that would probably, yeah. The snack that smiles back, Lamprey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and then I had one more question is, what's the deal with, like, the rebranding of the carp? Um, I feel like people inquiring minds might, might want to know, um, what is it called nowadays? Yeah, that is a great question. So last year, uh, Illinois DNR rolled out this brand new revamp of CARP in order to make it more appetizing. And so the name that has been proposed is Copi, short for copious, in reference to the sheer abundance of CARP in Illinois. And the idea was that 
uh, in other fish species, this has been successful like when they get rebrands. So one example is the orange ruffy. If you've ever seen that on like a, a menu, that was an organism that's also known as the slime head, which sounds nope. significantly less delicious. Ain't no one ordering that at a restaurant. Nope, uh -uh. Nope. <laughs> zero, zero percent <laughs> of people I'll are ordering. I'll take the orange ruffy. No, no, I'll take the slime head. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so you're like, you know, I see slime head on the menu. There is no way I'm ordering that. So the, the same principle was applied because, you know, there's sort of these negative associations with carp, they're bottom feeders. Um, and that, a lot of that comes from the common carp, which is not, it's, it's different than the new invasive carp we have. The common carp we've had for a couple hundred years. A lot of people just are like, okay, we, we live with the common carp, even though it is a non-native as well. Where copi or the invasive carp that we have are different is that they are filter feeders. So they are generally eating a lot of plankton. Um, these are things like big head and silver carp. And because of that, they actually don't have kind of that muddy taste of a common carp. So the idea was to sort of separate it in people's minds. Like this isn't the carp that you're thinking of. This is a firm white fleshed fish that honestly tastes a lot like tilapia. Um, that please, please buy this so we can sell, you know, an invasive species. We have this resource. Uh, fishermen are collecting uh, carp in the rivers and not having a market for it. So this was an effort to try and increase the the market for eating invasive carp. Can, you know, if you can't eat them, beat them is the general idea. Yeah, I think that's a really cool element that like we forget about that it's not just about like this idea of like removing it with herbicides or pesticides or lamprosides or whatever and and all these other things but also like changing the culture of how we like let's make it a commodity let's make it a thing and i think that human element and human dimensions element of of uh land management and um is is really really interesting and um something that a lot of people probably like like oh it's all the same whether whatever we call it or not right but it's it that really makes a difference um how we we talk about the animal and the culture around that animal um really really changes things so yeah hopefully exactly. we don't make it too likable right um because then well, we don't want to create like a market for like farming it but no <laughs> I mean that's a super valid concern <laughs> because you know we there are people who are like encouraging consumption is not necessarily a good thing because if it becomes too valuable or too desired are you just then furthering the spread and like encouraging additional growth of this invasive species so it is definitely kind of a going back to the idea of trade-offs we were talking about earlier it's like does the removal of them balance the risk of creating too much of a market i know uh just the unfortunate fact that it has the same the carp name is with the bottom feeder a lot of people are like nope never gonna try it but and don't want to learn more about it or whatever so that rebranding i know there's a there's a restaurant by me local farm to table and they do they didn't call it kopi it was before that but they served carp and they called it something else too just to try to get over that i guess like stigma of that name and what it means and what that what that fish typically feeds on 
but yeah, I think there's definitely value to exploring those options, right? For other ways to get rid of it. And at this rate, there's so much carp. I feel like at least for a while, we're going to be okay. And I don't see it becoming the most popular fish out there, right? So um, definitely an option to explore and, and, and see. So everyone needs to go and try some copy after listening to this episode. You can find it. I was going to say, I think the Illinois DNR website, they have a Kopi website if you Google, and it does list um, some shops, I think largely in the Chicagoland area, but they, they might cover the whole state where there are shops that sell Kopi. So if you're looking for it and striking out, that might be a good place to check. As we wrap up today, uh, we want to end on a high note, right? So we want to um, just explore what can people do to help prevent new invasive species from getting into the Great Lakes. Everyone can definitely play a part in preventing invasive species. You know, whether you're an angler, you like going out, taking your boat out in the summer, uh, whether you like having pets, you know, keeping aquariums, everyone has a role to play. And the biggest role is knowing the steps you can take to help prevent unwanted guests, you know, whether that's uh, cleaning your boat after going out on the lake whether it is making sure that you're not dumping any live bait at the end of a day of fishing. Uh, if you like to keep aquaria, making sure that you're not releasing any pets. Uh, there's oftentimes pet shops will offer sort of take back programs in case, you know, you can't keep a pet any longer. Also the, you know, if you're building a garden, maybe choosing native species as alternates uh, for non-native species. And really just, you know, trying to stay aware of, of, you know, your environment. And as we kind of talked a little bit about earlier in the show, early detection is such an important part of invasive species management. And honestly, having more people out there with eyes where you're like, this is a new organism is really helpful just to help us as scientists understanding and get a heads up when something's out there. So even th using things like iNaturalist, that's been an unexpected way that we've been able to find new places that invasive species are, are introduced. So there's lots of different ways you can help out. But the biggest thing I would just say is, you know, depending on why you love the environment, how you interact with the environment, there's definitely a way you can, can help us in the, in the fight against invasive species. Definitely. I know, especially with iNaturalist, you mentioned there's a huge community of people that can just take a picture of something and report it on their phone and then other people can be like yep i agree that's what the species is or no i think it's this and it really helps build that map out i know i was just doing that today actually reporting a invasive grass that um i found and it hadn't been reported in that county before and it's only been found in three other counties in illinois so definitely taking the time because me i'm like oh someone's probably already done it already and they know it's there right and they don't. So making sure to add those observations to the map, um, whatever you know app you use to report those observations, um, is definitely really helpful for you know scientists and researchers who can't be everywhere all at once, right? Um, to kind of see. And a lot of the times we're working with like historic maps that might not be updated or accurate in the first place when they were created. So definitely having people to just report what they see, you know, whether it's native or non-native or whether you see it all the time or it looks new is definitely super important. If you're looking to also get involved in like more community science work too, like, so iNaturalist is like great for like, you know, 
I don't have a ton of time. Like I just love nature walks or I love going out or I love when I want to report what I see. Um, there's a couple other programs that like you can be a little more involved in and take training if you want to, too. So um, I know we love the river watch program. And so if you want to look more into that, you're welcome to, you kind of get like assigned a stream uh, and you get to help monitor, not just the, the biotic elements, but the abiotic elements and, and kind of watch for water quality. And, and that's definitely a way to see like the species possible reporting of invasives too. So I love the river watch program. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Katie, for sharing your knowledge on aquatic invasives with us today. And your, As we... your uh, passion for, for lamprey. Yeah, yes. and le leaving you with some nightmares too, perhaps. I love it. I love the discussion on lamprey. Um, so as we wrap up today, it's time for our special spotlight. So this is the point of the show where we shine a spotlight on something cool that we saw in nature this month. Um, so Abigail, I'm going to pick on you and you can go first. Yeah, so I uh, currently do a program called Conservation at Home. And I've been a part of it for four years. And um, this last year, I finally gotten the chance to like add more natives to my yard and all these things and everything looks really beautiful. And I just got certified last week. So my yard now has this gorgeous sign in it that says conservation at home. And it can pass like, so maybe that's what I saw cool in nature was this really awesome sign that I earned. Um, and, um, and so that, and then the other thing I wanted to add to is I've been doing a lot of like seed collecting of my own like landscape seeds. And then I'm like, being part of the community of like, I have butterfly weed. What do you have? I got bundle flower. Let me share. And so um, just like joining that community has been really cool. And um, also I feel like I'm learning so much about the plants in my yard more so than if I didn't collect the seed. Cause like that's a whole different element of that plant is how it's reproducing and, and what it needs to do that. And so, so yeah, just really, really cool science going on in my, in my property right now. Awesome. Love that Abigail. Um, Katie, what's your special spotlight? Yeah, so I actually grew up in the Toledo area in Ohio. So I'm around Lake, Lake Erie and I came home earlier this month uh, to visit some family. And during the time, saw that they were doing a release of Lake Sturgeon into the Maumee River, which leads into Lake Erie. And so we went down and released a bunch of baby Lake Sturgeon uh, into the river and they were super cute. Uh, you don't know lake sturgeon they look kind of prehistoric these little dinosaurs and they used to be really abundant in the great lakes but were overfished um and so this was part of a, a larger effort to reintroduce them to the river but it was just fun to see a lot of people um coming out to support some native species restoration and honestly the best part was to get the sturgeon from the buckets where they you know they had given them to people to release to the river, they had a little plastic slide. And so you would tip your bucket onto the slide. So then the stur baby sturgeon, who's like, you know, maybe six inches long is just taking this joy ride down, down the plastic slide into the river. And it was perfect. I'm like picturing like every time you send it down, wee, wee. tiny little wheeze, <laughs> which is great because that is exactly what I was imagining as my sturgeon went down the slide, little wee. So good. All right, Aaron, what's your special spotlight? Um, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, it's been a while. I can't remember time anymore. Um, I was in the backyard watering my native plants and I just moved a few months ago. And so I brought a bunch of native plants with me. They're all in these little pots. I haven't put them in the ground yet. And I'm amazed constantly by what I'm finding just in these 
pots of native plants still in like a barren landscape. Um, but I was watering the other night and I saw something large start to flutter and there was a banded sphinx moth in my potted plant, which is about three inches across and it had this beautiful pink underwing color and uh it was super calm to let me pick it up hang out take some selfies with it of course and some pictures uh, but it was super cool because I've never seen I've never seen the caterpillar I haven't seen the caterpillar before they can often be like red in color or have this awesome like crazy red and green stripes uh, so it was super cool to see that and just know my little native plants are doing something insect and wildlife is it's coming and finding the the area so it's just always cool I never know what I'm going to find when I go outside so oh I love that I love that a lot of the times we have this stuff and we're like does it matter is it making a difference and it's things like that that really feel like it is so amazing all right. This has been another episode on the Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Check out next month's episode where we talk with Dr. Joy O'Keefe all about that.